Welcome to the CSR Podcast. I'm Brian Brazo. I'm here with Brett Mottram, a postgraduate MA student in the Centre for Renaissance Studies, who's going to tell us about his research. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your project? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, the, the title for it is probably the best place to start. It's Gavin Douglas's Maffeo Veggio refiguring the 13th book of the Aeneid in early 16th century Scotland, which isn't very catchy, but basically I'm looking at a 1513 Scottish translation of Veggio's early 15th century Neo-Latin text, which imitated Virgil and continued the narrative of the Aeneid through Aeneas's victory over the Italians, his marriage to Lavinia, the marriage festivities, all that sort of thing. And I'm essentially looking looking at what Douglas changed in his translation. So can you tell us a little bit about Veggio's addition to the Aeneid? Why would Veggio write that? Is this the first instance of fan fiction? (laughs) Essentially, yeah, it's um, it's a very good way of describing it, but as opposed to something, well, I suppose Game of Thrones sort of comes to mind, but perhaps something better known, like, for my generation, at least a bit earlier, say Harry Potter, it's fan fiction of a text which was known by most of his generation and had been known for centuries. So Virgil, most influential classical poet, Aeneid, the most influential classical text throughout the Middle Ages, essentially. The Aeneid finishes rather brusquely, in a sense. It really does, and and I think lots of readers at the time noticed that. It's what inspired Veggio, who was at the time a 24-year-old, law student at the University of Pavia to, in a sense, show off how well he could imitate Virgil, but also tying up a few of the loose ends in that abrupt close in which turns his death scream is the final sound heard. And um, how does Veggio tie up those loose ends? What happens um, in there? He ties it up by, I mean, Aeneas standing over the corpse of Turns at the start of Veggio's work speaks from serene lips, the peace between the incoming Trojans and the Italians is is emphasised rather more, even though, and I think this hasn't been noticed by a lot of critics, a lot of the problematic nature of what Virgil was doing is carried through the supplementum, so it's not entirely tying up the loose ends, but that's certainly a part of it. We knew that Aeneas was going to marry Lavinia and that peace would be secured in Italy anyway, but Veggio still has to present that. He, He makes it part of his narrative. And then Finally, Aeneas is making to a scar at his death, which is quite literally something. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> a catastrophism. Um, so it takes everything that was hinted at in Virgil and that readers at the time knew was going to happen, and he just makes it concrete and mm. presents it to to the reader. But I think he does it in a very interesting way, in which he preserves some of the the sort of moral ambiguity and complexity that Virgil had in his work, as well as resolving things and making it seem like a good guy in terms of having mega terrific blunder in, in opposing him. And do you think that Veggio writing the supplementum in the 15th, 15th century, mm, correct? Yeah, yeah. 1428. Um, Veggio writing this in 1428, th- there's such a large difference of time mm. between that and when Virgil was writing. How does the 13th book of the Aeneid sort of reflect Veggio's time period, reflect sort of the political situation in Italy at the time? Um, people have commented on what was going on at the time in, well, around Milan, which is where Veggio was, was working and obviously a very war-torn <laughs> area. And you can sort of see why he would have this focus on what happens to the defeated party in in such a conflict. And there's that, but you've got that more direct political influence combined with the fact that lots of people were also imitating classical authors and basically trying to demonstrate how their own increased knowledge of Latin and classical Latin style could be sort of turned to account in creating new works and emulating the authors who they were, were looking back to. 
And do you think there's any tie-in with the Sforza family in Milan at this at this time? If we're thinking of, I mean, I'm thinking here of a, a very old work of scholarship, Hans Bauer's um, mm, The Christ of the of Early Italian Renaissance, yeah. which you know reads like an exciting novel. Mm. I'm wondering if Veggio is kind of thinking through that at all. I'm not sure, perhaps. I mean, he's more sort of allied to the, the Visconti, or at least trying to gain Visconti, patching age. And mm. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what conclusions to draw, but it is suggestive that the same emphases that I've noticed in Veggio's work, which I think are sort of stressed even further by Douglas in his translation, were also being looked at by some of Veggio's own contemporaries. So his friend um, Pierre Candido di Cembrio wrote another supplementum to the Aeneid, which continued the narrative that was told directly from the Italian perspective. So you've got this sense of how does the other side feel as well. And mm. I think Dicembrio actually accused Vecchio of plagiarising his work. <laughs> um, so afterwards. they were both writing 13th books of the Aeneid. Yeah. One's not falling on from the other. Oh, yes, interesting. Yeah, yeah Dicembrio's is a lot shorter than Vecchio's is better, in my opinion. It's certainly more famous to the extent that it's famous at all. And moving to Douglas's translation, again, um, you know, happening a little bit later, happening mm. in a different national context. Mm. Uh, I mean, in a sense, I think it's fascinating because it shows the kind of polyvalency of Virgil's text, mm. right? How the exactly. Aeneid can be adapted in so many different ways. Mm. But the adaptation of Veggio is quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that. What everyone so far who's written on it has noticed is that the celebratory aspects of it, so the marriage banquet, all of that conclusive um, sort of side of the work has been emphasised by Douglas. He'll expand, say, three of Veggio's lines into 11, something like that, very often, and that's far more than his usual translation practice, which is one Latin line to two Scottish lines. And he also incorporates lots of Chaucerian elements from, say, The Legend of Diego, which emphasise this. There's very much a, a romance tradition playing into what Douglas is doing, um, and he makes it a lot more contemporary to his own Scottish aristocratic audience, and you can really see that throughout he's very much trying to make the Aeneid vernacular his translation of the 13th book came at the end of a translation of the Aeneid as a whole which was the first into any form of English so he's I think trying to make it very relevant to his readers and you can see that as well in how he presents Aeneas as this moral paragon even though there is also an extension of Veggio's focus on the Italians and, and Turnus in particular would Douglas's readers have been as familiar with the Aeneid as Veggio's readers might have been? Mm, or would they have been more question. familiar with a sort of English version of mm. the Aeneid or even something like the Roman de Neas or something yes, like that coming yeah, from France? Yes, that's true. Um, it's a good question. I mean, they were certainly familiar with lots of adaptations of the Aeneid which had been sort of accruing over the medieval period, yeah, the Roman de Nier, um, the works of, you know, Jaris and Dictis um, about the... the exiles fleeing Troy and Aeneas being presented as a traitor, which is one mm. of the traditions that um, Douglas is combating, along with Chaucer's idea that Aeneas was a cad for abandoning Dido, um, things like that. So they were certainly familiar with these adaptations and a sort of um, mediated Aeneid, but I think they were also familiar with the text itself. Not many, probably, but certainly there were numerous authors in Scotland who were receiving both classical works and Italian adaptations of them in the 15th century, and it's quite an interesting area of study, and has been for, well, several years, but it's still quite surprising if you tell people that Scotland had this awareness and engagement with the Italian Renaissance so early. Just what is the date of that. Douglas's translation? 1513. Oh, wow, that's quite early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is. You tend to think of the English Renaissance as later in the 16th century, mm -hmm. but then you sort of look at... Okay, it's Scots, but it's still in a form of English, and Douglas was very much, he saw his work as appealing to both you know, the south of you know, the Isles as well as um, the northern parts of 
the land as well. And do we know anything about how Douglas's work was received? Were people like Spencer or Shakespeare reading this? People have um, debated whether the Earl of Surrey in his translation of Book 4 was sort of influenced by some of Douglas's choices in how he translated that book. So there was certainly a sort of influence there. And yeah, I'm not sure. In the 1580s, there was an English translation of the Aeneid, which also included the 13th book, which perhaps isn't remarkable in itself. I mean, people have debated why Douglas translated it because he, he attaches prologues to each of the books of the Aeneid that he translates. And in the prologue to the 13th one, it's a dream vision where Veggio is... He comes to him after Douglas has translated the rest of the Aeneid and he basically says, OK, why haven't you translated my book? <laughs> and Douglas says, well, it's nothing like Virgil. It's like the fifth wheel to a cart. And you know, all of these other quite brilliant metaphors. And in the end, the sort of vision of Veggio just beats him into submission until he promises to translate his book. Yeah, the 13th book was reprinted from 1471 up until sometime in the middle of the 17th century. So it's not that surprising that um, Douglas translated it or that anyone else would. It was seen as part of the epic, in a sense, even though people debated whether or not it was a decent imitation of Virgil and whether or not it belonged there, things things like that. But yeah, it might Douglas's translation, to go back to the original question, might have been influential in, in some ways, but yeah, I'm not absolutely sure. I think the fact that someone who translated the Aeneid into a form of English at all was more the, the major thing as opposed to his translation of the 13th book in particular. And so now that we have all this kind of background information, can you tell us a little bit more about your project in particular? What mm. are you focusing on in Douglas's translation? Well, I'm essentially comparing Veggio's Latin text with Douglas's Scottish one, line by line, and trying to know every oh. single divergence. And because that's unmanageable, I've adopted a, a sort of system of classification, which is based on the one that Christopher Baswell employs in his book Virgil in Medieval England, which looks at well, from the 12th century to Chaucer, and devised different ways of reading, interpreting, adapting the Aeneid from all across that time period. He, he divides it into um, a few discrete categories. One is the pedagogical, so people reading and looking in Virgil for um, information about classical places or um, archaic terms, basically using Virgil's text as a way of teaching about the world in which it was written. Right, so, much, uh, much like Poliziano used Greek texts. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's one element anyway. Um, and then another one is um, a romance tradition, which we've spoken about a bit, just using these mediations and focusing a lot on chivalric values and subjectivity, especially of women, like, like Lavinia in this case, and just familiarising the narrative more. And then another one that he focuses on is the moralising, which we've also touched on slightly, presenting Aeneas as this moral exemplar and all his actions as being, OK, you really should follow what he's doing, use him as a guide to, to virtue. But then I've also, because of some of the emphases that I've noticed in Veggio's work and translation, um, included another category, which I've called the pathetic, not, not quite the, the happiest thing, but in the sense of pathos-filled, you know, mm -hmm. looking at suffering cost, both to the Italians, especially Turnus, and Aeneas's troops themselves, because he'll pick up on things like Aeneas in the first book of the Aeneas saying, there will be a day when we look back on all of this and, and think, finally, we've reached our goal. And, he, and then in the 13th book, Veggio, um, amplifying Douglas's version, has Aeneas say something similar, you know, we're finally at the end, but just think of what we've gone through to get this far. Yeah. So I've sort of taken these categories and used them as chapter headings and taken every divergence or new emphasis that I found in the textual comparison mm. and 
sort of put them into these <laughs> these boxes, so to speak, and then try to conjecture what message this gives as a whole. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Um, I don't know if your project is focusing on this or not, but can you say a little bit more about meter? Because mm. one of the really interesting things, I mean, if you look at the Virgilian line, right, that dactylic hexameter, mm. that, you know, that cadence that you mm. hear, um, it's something that, you know, a lot of Italian poets struggled with. How do you translate this mm. into a sort of a modern vernacular? Um, Italian lends itself to it in some interesting ways. I'm wondering, how did a poet like Douglas translate this into Scots, or how was it translated into English? What were the sort of struggles oh, with well, that? Um, well, for Douglas, it's relatively straightforward. He writes in iambic pentameter couplets, so although he might get rid of certain elements or extend others into more couplets than perhaps another translator would have used, the meter's fairly uniform. I suppose, especially if you read in the original Old Scots, which can be a, a challenge, but it's it's also a beauty in itself. So that's how he approaches it. But looking at later English poets and how they experimented with it, it's quite striking. I mean, I'm thinking immediately of Stanghurst and how he tried to imitate the, the Latin meter and it had sometimes beautiful but also very often bizarre mm-hmm. <laughs> effects. Um, and Douglas really doesn't do that. But it is really interesting in the whole question of how do you transpose a, a meter into of the language it's yeah it's it's very interesting it's almost as though in that time period as well there was a real struggle between whether to go for iambic pentameter or something more syllabic or stressed and also when Douglas translates he'll use um, some medieval alliterative traditions as well like something from say Sir Gawain that that style mm-hmm. and he'll use that for especially dramatic moments like battle scenes or vivid descriptions which is also quite quite interesting I think it's why I'm enjoying so, the project so much. You can look at the classical mm-hmm. reception, but also you look at the reception of the classical in the form of medieval writings, which also right. play into what he was doing. Well, I imagine also it appeals to his readers, right? Mm, his readers, when they exactly. would see this, would associate the meter with something like mm. Gawain or something yeah, like that yeah, and then think, yeah. think and through that. Even oh. more so, the more, well, not quite nationalistic, but national, national-themed epics, like um, focusing on William Wallace or Robert the Bruce, which Douglas's readers would have known. I mean, they were alliterative as well. Mm-hmm. So that must have been a, a reminiscence as well. And where do you see your project developing? How do you see it developing? And in which uh, ways do you see it moving forward? What sort of future strands of research do you mm-hmm. see coming out of this? Well, the tentative conclusion I have so far, looking at having um, sort of noticed the the threads of familiarising the narrative to readers, focusing on the suffering of the defeated, presenting it as, as this model of virtue who is also willing to show compassion. It's, it ties in fairly well with some work by Sally Mapston on advice to princes literature mm. in Scots around the same period. And so I'm wondering if, given Douglas's audience and given the fact that it was written about, well, a decade, but he could have been working on it in the years between this in which a marriage between Margaret Tudor, so Henry VII's daughter, and um, a son of, a son of um, James IV of Scotland had put an end to a war between England and Scotland. So it's a simil- it's, it's weird, but or perhaps <laughs> entirely fitting, but the narrative of the 13th book, in a way, is a parallel to political events in Douglas's own time. So mm. you're thinking the idea of this translation or the emphases within it putting forward this argument that could be interpreted as how rulers should behave in this context. It's quite interesting, but I know that that requires a lot more research, so that could be another direction. So you're suggesting then this idea that the War of the Roses might have been seen as a kind of war between the Latins and the Trojans in a way? (laughs) Um, Not the War War of the Roses, but a war between um, England and Scotland, but I suppose um, like looking a, a bit 
later um, into the 16th century and what Samuel Daniel was doing by adapting Lucan, mm -hmm. um, Lucan's Civil War to describe the Wars of the Roses. That's that's interesting too. It was certainly something that happened later and I suppose in Goethe's case it was, yeah, it's entirely plausible that that's what he, he might have been doing. And do you uh, see yourself putting forward a modern edition of Douglas's text? Is there a modern edition um, of the text? Yeah, there's... Um, to go through the sort of critical history, the best edition is probably the one by David Coldwell, which is early 20th century, and that preserves the old Scots and has lots of notes, which are very useful, even though obviously not everyone has the focus of, of my project because that's entirely reasonable. It's a pretty niche thing to look at. But that's an older edition, and a more recent one that's came out within the last 10 years, I've forgotten where, I think maybe 2006, is by Gordon Kendall, and he has updated some of the older Scots. Yeah, I think that's the, the most recent edition of Douglas. I think it's fairly sound. You look at the manuscripts mm -hmm. that, that he's used and it seems, yeah, it seems reasonable, really. I think Veggie's text, though, I mean, even the Itachi edition, I think that could be improved on being away because it, they don't really say where they've got the, the text from. But yeah, perhaps that's, yeah, that's another thing for further mm -hmm. research establishing a, a critical edition of, of Veggio, I suppose. And you're going off next year to do a PhD mm. at uh, University of East Anglia, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, well, that project will, in a way, well, it will entirely <laughs> diversify and do on a bigger scale what I've hoped to do with the MA dissertation, in that it will look at Veggio's reception of Virgil, not only in the 13th book, but across all of his works, which include moral treatises, quite brilliant adaptations of sort of more Hellenic, I suppose, classical texts. So focusing on um, Askyanax after the, the Trojan War, focusing on the Golden Fleece and retelling that, that story. And yeah, moral treatises, as, as I said, but also epigrams. So looking at how he uses Virgil across all of these, and I hope that that will also demonstrate what I think has become clear here of how polyvalent Virgil was in, in this period. Lots of different elements of his work and themes and preoccupations and stylistic features were taken up and adapted and imitated. And that's the first part of the PhD. And then the second part of it will be to look at how that was then received in Scotland and England hmm. in the 16th century. So looking at this translation by Douglas, but also the Boy to English by Thomas Twine and um, Thomas Fair in, yeah, the 1580s <laughs> and how they translated the 13th book. And hopefully that will be quite interesting because I don't think anyone's really <laughs> bothered to look at that yet. And so in what ways does your work build on um, existing scholarship on Virgil reception? I'm thinking here of someone like Craig Callendor, mm. for example. Well, I think that Craig Callendor, what I found so far is that he sees, just to focus on Veggio, he sees the 13th book as something very, I think he even used the phrase black and white, in the sense of being this exercising, epigeatic rhetoric and praising in ears, blaming Turnus having this very dichotomous relationship, and I really don't think it's true because of the amount of space Veggio devotes to cost and how he'll use classical genres such as the tragic laments. For example, the lament of Juturna clearly inspires Dornus' lament for Turnus, his son, as he's literally mourning over his corpse while his city's burning. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can't really say that that's presenting morality as black and white. That's really 
that's quite complex. And Douglas does a similar thing when he translates it. And other people between Veggio and Douglas, especially in the medium of woodcut illustrations for English editions like the 1501 and 1502, um, the Scensius editions of Virgil, which Incorporated Veggio's 13th book, you can see these same issues and emphases being shown in the actual illustrations. There'll, there'll be a lot of dead bodies lying around or people crying <laughs> and mourning. And even some of the annotations emphasise it. I mean, a lot of them will pick up on orations as you'd expect it was very sort of commonplace style of of reading but then you'll get to the lament of Jeterna and suddenly the annotations will just explode and the same thing for some of the annotations on the 13th book itself which pick up on these these models and, and imitate them i mean one of the things i've always found fascinating particularly looking at early modern europe early modern italy in particular is the emphasis on that scholarship's given to Virgil, but the sort of lack of emphasis on Homer. Mm. Um, and the, it seems, you know, initially it seems from the scholarship that certainly Virgil was the more popular poet. Mm. Um, at the same time, I mean, we know that the Odyssey was frequently taught in terms of mm. uh, moral uh, precepts. Yeah. Um, you know, bits from the Iliad, particularly speeches, were often mm. looked at, um, mm. especially as understanding of Greek and Greek learning grew. Mm. So I wonder, you know, is is there also an equivalent reception of Homer going on in England and mm. Scotland? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, in the early 16th century, I, I say probably not, certainly in Scotland. I mean, everyone tends to agree that Douglas's knowledge of Greek was non-existent, partial here and there. I mean, he... he we're probably knowing the Homeric narratives through Latin translations, but I don't think that's quite that's quite answering your <laughs> your question about actual, no. I mean, I was just Greek. I was putting the question out there. I mean, it's it's always yeah, one of these things that's really quite interesting, mm. um, especially in the sense of people looking at what Virgil's doing with Homer in terms of imitation and adaptation, and then perhaps yeah, seeing what they could do with with Virgil and perhaps Homer as well. Thanks very much. Mm. This was really very interesting. Yeah, really yeah, great no to learn more about mm-hmm. your work and your yeah. project. And uh, thank you. I hope that everything goes well. And we look forward to, <laughs> to reading it when it's published. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> For more information on topics discussed here today, check out our website at www.tiny.cc forward slash CSR podcast.